Yo, where you at, G? I'm on G. Boloa. Ue to G. Yo, G. Ugubi. Hey, G. Ue, hey. I'm in the studio. Studio. Welcome to Amp Stories Podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to Amp Stories Podcast. It's your girl, G. And of course, today we have another special guest. Special guest, are you ready to introduce yourself? Yes, I am. Awesome. Go ahead. The floor is yours. All right. Thank you. So my name is Alex Osekudu. Mm-hmm. Originally from Ghana. And now I live in the United States, uh, specifically in Knoxville, Tennessee, where I work at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville as an assistant professor, specifically doing public policy research. Um, let's say one fun thing about me is about my likeness for public speaking. I like addressing people on different topics from politics to public administration to public policy to religion and all of that. That's me in brief. So you say you like debates. That's what you're trying to tell me. Yeah. I mean, I, I like <laughs> ideas and being criticized and also politely also criticizing, criticizing okay. people's ideas. You yes. like criticizing people's ideas. Constructive criticism or yeah, just criticism, criticism like, oh, you can do better than that. <laughs> constructive criticism. Because I think it's part of the PhD training where you receive people's work and as part of helping them to improve upon the work. You go like, hey, can you add this? Can you reconsider shaping that that sentence in a different way? And so you do that to people and people would also do that to you. I see. That's where it comes from. (laughs) So since you got the craft of constructive criticism while getting your PhD, tell us about your journey towards that. Why did you think going to get a PhD was important? What made you want to do it? Yeah, interesting. Actually, the story goes back to when I was a little boy. I liked collecting books. Mm. So I wasn't always reading them. Okay. I like the whole idea of having books around. You can see my shelf. I <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. a lot of books. And so I got to college and each time I visited some of my professors, I would see that they have all these books on their shelf. I'm like, so I was blown away. So getting into a PhD program was just me trying to follow through with my childhood hobby of collecting books. And I imagine that, okay, if I could just follow that hobby as a lot of where I probably just said, end up being an academic like them, mm-hmm. like this in college. And I thought that is important because for me, it's a journey of self-discovery where I can now sit back and think about how an individual can actually turn something that they like doing in their younger age into something that they can take on as a career. So I have a lot of connections to a lot of memories about playing with all kinds of books and reading all kinds of literature. And I think about my struggles with reading, learning how to read and learning how to spell certain words and all of that. And how I've been able to work through all those difficulties, right? And now I see myself, not see myself, I am now I am an academic and I teach people and constructively criticize people's ideas and all those kinds of things. So for me, it has been a journey of self-discovery. That's interesting. I don't think anyone has said it like that to me about Ah. a journey of (laughs) self-discovery. Usually I hear it's like a journey of new research that you can provide to the world, but nobody relates it to self. That's really interesting that you relate to self. You did say that you had some difficulties, you know, reading and spelling different things. How did you motivate yourself to say, you know what, a PhD is going to be even difficult? <laughs> you know, you have plenty, there's so many tests and exams that you have to do to prove that, yeah, I'm worth yeah. the degree. And so that alone yeah. would have deterred me to say, oh, forget it. You know what I mean? So how did you motivate yourself to say, this is something yeah. I want to do, even though I had struggles in XYZ? Yeah. I'm going to tell you something that would probably surprise you. I mean, I'll say it was down to raw grit and determination. But the nuance to that is that I tried to get into a PhD 
program for 30 times. Sorry, say it now. Say it again. Okay, three let me repeat zero that. or one three. Three. So three one, zero. Two, so I succeeded on my 26th application. Wow. Over I think a three or four year period. So every year I'll do like five or six when I was in Ghana. And I kept on failing. And I didn't know why, because I had a good GPA, like 3.93. So I really didn't know what was going wrong mm -hmm. with my well, in hindsight, I think maybe God was, you know, trying to say, hey, you calm down. I'll, I'll get you in there. It's really not about <laughs> being smart on your own, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Yes, raw grit and waiting on God and just keeping my feet on the pedal and just not giving up, determining that, okay, you see people around you, you watch them on television, you listen to them on radio, doctor, so so and so, doctor, I'm like, okay, I'm going to be like one of these people. And so, yes, being doggedly determined and be willing to just keep trying again, of course, aided by God's grace. And that's what did the trick for me. No, we have to, no, no, no. Dig, dig, dig we have to deeper. dig, yes, please, please. We have to dig a little deeper. You said you applied 30 times. So I have a list of all the schools that I applied to mm -hmm. and uh, rejects that I got, like the dates. I have all of them collected. I think somewhere in my code. I can just share that with you if you want. And at some point when I was done with my master's in Ghana, I even wanted to get into a master's program thinking that, okay, I could leverage mm -hmm. that. So that interpreted. Even that I was rejected. <laughs> mm. Oh, yes. Did you question like, oh, hey, thank you for mm. the email, but can you tell me why? Like, what can I do better? Did you ask yeah, any of those questions? Sometimes I did. And usually schools will not explain because they tell you, hey, we had a lot of applicants mm -hmm. and if we should construct an email explaining why they were rejected to every applicant. That's mm -hmm. just not so they wouldn't do that and so schools would normally not explain those who are nice to explain would just say well we had too many competitive applicants we thought that you were good I but not good um, mm. and in hindsight again i think that part of the problem was that if you come from ghana you say to school in the u.s or in canada you come in as an international student correct yeah and your school fees is twice expensive mm -hmm. compared to a domestic student okay mm -hmm. so admission committees face this interesting problem of, okay, if we admit one international student, we basically have to do our work with two domestic students. Now, do we want to do that? Mm. So there is questions about resource availability. We want to do that as a committee. And if they don't want to do that, they'll just throw application away. That, I think, is probably one of the challenges um, in hindsight. And then the other one, I think, really has to do with fit. So you're in Ghana, you want to school in the US, you want to school in Canada. Say you want to study comparative politics, focusing on Ghana and Nigeria, for example. And you have applied to a department where you don't have any professor who does work in Africa, let alone focusing on Ghana and Nigeria, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there is no way you will get in. Even if you had a GPA 4.0, chances are so slim. So right. it's not always a reflection of a student performance if they don't get in. So in hindsight, there are always you know these minor uh, considerations that admission committees think about. They factor into their decision making. And if a student does not meet those criteria, no matter how brilliant you are, you wouldn't. That's just like it. a lack of faculty in a specific topic that you're interested in, which is understandable. So mm -hmm. during this path of you applying 30 times, first of all, big up to you because 30 times, <laughs> 30 times is, wow, it's phenomenal. So I'm hoping anyone that's listening to this right now understands that you can actually do it, whatever it is that you really want to do. It may take 50 times. Hey, but as My long as you have actually. that grit. Yeah, imagine a brother in Norway who's also completing his PhD in civil engineering. He did 45. But, okay, were you guys in competition of who can do the most applications? 
No, 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 no. It's just that getting to a PhD can be very difficult. I don't think a lot of people realize that. It's very competitive, very difficult. One, because in most cases, you are funded. Right. So think about it. If you're going to be funded for four or five years, and every year is like $50,000, school is investing in you. If it's four years, like $200,000. If it's five years, like $250,000. That's a lot of money. <laughs> One individual. So it's not just a university deciding to give admission to a student. There are also serious financial considerations involved and whether the department has the means to sponsor that student. So you right. do it the first time. There's no guarantee that you will succeed the very first time. And I guess if you're really interested in it and you really want to do it, you must be willing to go a few more times. And that tenacity, I think, will carry you throughout the program because you would enter the PhD program only to realize that it's not as smooth as you thought. Mm -mm. So if getting admission becomes a struggle for you and you give up, it probably just means you're not ready. <laughs> it's okay. You don't got to be ready. It's not for you. <laughs> Note to self, it's not for me. It's not for you. It's not for me. Yes. It has been a very interesting year. So what inspired you through all of that? So I understand you said God, mm -hmm. you had grit and tenacity, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. what else? What was the inspiration and why was it so important that, hey, me, I need to go and get this piece <laughs> done, no matter how long it takes. No matter how long it takes. I think for me, it still goes back to the childhood thing I mentioned. Like okay. It, was, it has been a part of self-discovery, all right? So wait, so I have a question. Yes. So as a child, did you know that this pathway was going to be a self-discovery pathway for you? Or you realized that as you started to get older? Yes, I didn't know when I was a child. Okay. But when I go to college, each time I visit a professor, I'll see you know, you have a lot of books on the shelf. And this professor will come to class and will stand at the podium and they'll give a lecture on all kinds of issues. Like in Ghana, we have it's not like in the US where you have, say, about 30 or 20 students in, in a classroom. In Ghana, you can have like hundreds, like 200, 300. Oh, that's not true. This class is where it's been 100, 150, okay. 200. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. All right. And I'll think about these professors and the way they will come to class and lecture. And each time I visited them, I would see all these books. So something started clicking in my mind. Okay. So I used to do that when I was a little boy. Like I'll collect all these books and. I wouldn't necessarily read them. I read a few, but not all of them. So I began making connections to, okay, if I probably continue this idea of collecting books and getting into books and reading and studying, I'll probably just end up being an academic. Plus, it'll give me the chance to improve on my public speaking skills. I would just get to do one of the things that I like to do. Okay, so when I got into a PhD program, and trust me, it involves an incredible amount of learning. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> I was suffocated. I was like, okay, I've always wanted to do this, but at some point I was like, hmm, this is tough. <laughs> <laughs> Started questioning. <laughs> but I never got to the point of quitting before I go to like, a lot of people will tell me about how others started PhD and do quit. There's a high attrition rate based on current statistics. So it's that a lot of people start and they end at what is called ABD, which is all by dissertation. And dissertation is pretty much an extended essay that you write. You write and different to earn the, the degree. Right. So a lot of people just end after the coursework, especially in the US. And for some reason, they will not write that Finish essay. Out. Yeah. And so they end up getting what is called ABD, all but dissertation. I actually know someone like that, interestingly yeah. enough. Yeah, I felt the heat and the pressure, but I never got to the point of quitting. Throwing the towel, hold my arms, I'm done. I'm going back to Ghana. No, I never got to that point. <laughs> so what That's took me good. through the childhood thing and that strong, intense belly power that, okay, I got into this and I have to get this thing done because I saw myself as okay getting this done has to do with discovering myself redefining my position in the world sort of 
identifying my place, you know what I mean, uh, mm-hmm. in this life. Okay? Because then getting a PhD, I imagined, it turned out to be true, will give you access to a lot of resources, put you in a position to create knowledge, kind of like the whole, all those kinds of things. The other thing that comes with it is you're always reading and learning and exposing yourself. And so on, every, on a daily basis, you are learning and getting yourself informed and you have a lot of information at your disposal. Of course, it's a different ballgame if you want to talk about what you do with that information. But at least you are getting yourself informed. So what have you discovered? What have you found out about yourself? <laughs> you didn't think I wasn't going to ask. Oh, man. You should have been ready for that one. The way I was looking at you, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to ask. What have you I discovered about yourself? Mm-hmm. Tell us. Tell us. I mean, a number of things. One of them is basically cementing my identity, which is that I have been able to develop a personal framework that allows me to think about how an individual can move from ignorance to mastery. First of all, we are all ignorant about so many things. But from ignorance, you can be aware of something. Somebody might tell you, you might read it somewhere. Uh, maybe you're driving, you see a signboard, you read it somewhere, you're just aware of it. You may just read a short paragraph in a book and just be aware of something. Now, if you want to move on from that step or that state, you have to engage in a lot of reading. These are have audiobooks, basically getting yourself informed at the stage of just accumulating knowledge. Now, if you can understand different problems from different perspectives, sometimes on the same subject, you have understanding. And the next level is what I call, like people call it wisdom, but I call that mastery, mm. which is the ability to be able to synthesize knowledge from different angles to be able to address a problem. So that's how I put it. And I think that I have been able to discover this about myself that, okay, if I don't know something, but I'm willing to go through this framework that I've just described to you, I'll be fine. And I'll be fine in terms of I'll be aware of it. I will know it. I can apply it. I will not be ignorant about it. And it just makes my life better because I'm armed with knowledge. Okay. So that's one of the things I've discovered about myself. The other thing I've discovered myself, okay, I think it has made me much more confident, much more sure about what my abilities are and what I can do because it is by God's grace. And the fact that I can observe what other people are doing, the great things they are doing to change the world. Jay Bezos is one of them. I like him a lot. He's my mentor. <laughs> I'm like, I kind of can do, if not everything, a little bit of what that guy is doing. Mm-hmm. Because all of a sudden you realize, okay, if you have been able to achieve this that you thought was so hard, there's definitely an opportunity to draw lessons from that experience and build on it. So if you are willing to apply yourself long enough and be persistent, be persevering, you can improve even beyond getting a PhD and do some amazing stuff for yourself, for your community, for your church, for your people, for humanity if you want. So those are the two things. Or is there more? I don't want to stop you if there's more. I think those are kind of the two main things. Major ones. Okay, cool. So, well, thank you for telling us that. We're going to break for the mix. And then we'll come back and we'll talk more about your discovery and your research. Make you 
I'm a pullover. She be not this kind of things where they make man see ya. And me, I understand, so your dad know like me. I wanna take a picture so this could last longer for me. Longer for me. Yeah. Take my secrets, got them like precious money. precious money. I never want to hear you quiet, so I write songs for you. So I write songs for you. And I believe, yes, I believe, I'm falling for you like a thief, freaking the knees. Cause when I see you, I feel to steal the keys to your heart again. Yes, I believe, yes, I believe I'm falling for you like a thief Freaking the knees It's when I see you I feel to steal the keys To your heart again My baby bad My baby good My baby all the things I need My baby bust up beside me My baby bust up beside me My baby bad My baby good My baby all the things I need My baby bust up beside me
follow come Still dreaming, but I no sleep. Give a picture, no Photoshop. Many man calling, I no pick. Many man calling, many man they give for me, but I no fall. Cause I love their plans, they jaga, jaga. Make a face my throat. Make a bad they no use me, they strong. Make water bottle, no stay my clothes. Oh, my advantage every time I call. Cause the only job it is set my cause. In my own and I sat on my own. Me, I know they for their talk alone. Oh, my advantage every time I call. Cause the only job it is set my cause. up your chest, I swear. If you don't get money, take it like that. When I face my fears, there's nothing I can't do from here. For more in the first date, I make mistakes, I swear. For knowledge, I sacrifice my fears. And I start right here. I say I'm better and you can't compare. Yeah, you know they can't see me outside. And me, I don't walk out there crying. and we're back i hope you all enjoyed that mix and so now we're gonna tap into your research what is your research about give us a run through quick synopsis of what so imagine like we're reading a little bio of yourself about your research give us that give us your five second what is it 30 second pitch yeah yeah since you love yeah. public speaking here you go that's your <laughs> elevator pitch on your research and how has it been researching finding new findings so here we go 30 seconds boom you're on the clock yeah. so basically i research how different people come together to influence what governments do and so that's pretty much what i research um, in layman's language the insight that i'm finding from my research so my research basically focuses on oil and gas policy environmental policy um, energy policy those kinds of things and one key insight i have 
identified so far is that when people choose to come together as a group, they almost always have a higher chance of getting the government to listen to them. Now, what's supporting <laughs> info? Can you tell us? Because someone yeah. is probably listening to this like, hmm, so how many people do I need yeah. to <laughs> gather? It gets really down to this whole idea of the strength of numbers. Because you have to understand that when different people come together, they bring on board massive resources, not just in terms of physical energy, but ideas, diversity of strategies that can be synthesized in a way that becomes much more stronger and powerful than if it were just one or two people you know, trying to get a government to act in a certain way. And I'll give you one example. So for those who follow Ghanaian politics, the government of Ghana, as part of trying to get the economy back in shape and backed on what is called the domestic debt exchange program. And as part of that program, they wanted to, in they didn't want to include. So pensioners, people who had retired, had the option to decide whether they would accept the government's program or they would not accept the government program. So those are the two options that uh, were available to these pensioners. Now, depending on which choice they made, it has implications. So one implication was that if they decided, and that's what they did, if they decided not to, not to sign on to the government's program, they were going to be classified as self-exempt. Okay. But that has its own implication because according to them, if there is not enough money in the system and government has to pay these people based on certain bonds that they have purchased in the past, the government is likely to give its attention to those who actually signed on to the debt exchange program and not those who decided to be self-exempt. Does that make sense? No, because what is the incentive of being self-exempt? Well, that's an important question and that's one of the reasons why they actually did not want to be classified as self-exempt simply because they decided not to sign on to that deal. Mm -hmm. They wanted the issuer, the government, to declare them exempt. They didn't want the government to say, okay, because you are not signing, you have declared yourself self-exempt. Does that make sense? Yeah. They wanted the government to say, okay, you have chosen not to sign and therefore we declare you exempt from this program. However, I still don't see the incentive because someone receiving pension, your hard work for, let's say, 65 years. You're right. Well, not really 65 years because you don't start working at one, one years old. But you know what I mean. So let's say 30 plus years. 20 years. Right? 20 years. You worked for that long. And now all of a sudden there's a new program that the government is showing, which is, hey, you don't need... If you don't want pension, you can classify yourself as self-exempt. But what is my benefit? How do I yeah. benefit from doing this? Okay, so this program, the government is going through this program because of the economic crisis that Ghana is facing. Normally, this is not a path that a government would like to follow. So this Understood. has... So you asked about this, and, and I think it's one of the reasons why, because these pensions were not seeing any incentive. Their monies were still going to be paid for them, but it was only going to be postponed to a certain time, and they just weren't happy. But the real point I wanted to bring on board by bringing up this example is that the pensioners got together and started picketing at the Ministry of Finance in Ghana. Mm. So it wasn't a loud protest. It was just old people sitting down <laughs> and singing some song, we shall overcome. <laughs> Community <laughs> forums. Uh-huh. And... A former chief justice by the name of Sofia Kufu mm -hmm. got into the midst and also decided to join the campaign. And uh, up until her participation, the government, you know, wasn't really taking them seriously. And when the chief justice got in and threw in a few words, within one week, the government took a U-turn. Interesting. So just by a few people deciding to come together and stay united and campaign for a certain cause, it wasn't a violent campaign, really nonviolent. Peaceful protests, they were very consistent with their requests 
we just want the issuer to declare us exempt. That's all we want. Nothing complicated. Initially, the government was recalcitrant in doing that. But after about two or three weeks, and of course, one week of uh, picketing, the government gave in. So I'm bringing this example to sort of emphasize the point I made earlier that if people are willing to come together and form these groups and have a common cause, they are more likely. It doesn't always mean that, you know, get the result they want, but they are more likely to be able to get government to uh, at least give them a hearing, um, get government's attention, and then they'll pick things up from there. That's so, one of the important things I'm finding in research, yeah. So what impact do you think your insights can bring to, I guess, what is your target audience as well, yeah. other than government and people who are in China? Well, I guess that's your target I answered my own question. And so... <laughs> Better yet, so what do you believe your impact can be with your insights? I'll start with my target audience. Uh, I basically have two audiences. One of them is the niche academic community. You know, so when I read my articles, I'm like, okay, first of all, targeting these other academic worker scientists, public policy researchers, people who stayed in public administration, public management, all of that. But then every now and then I always create a blog out of many of my articles and kind of, I wouldn't say watered down, but kind of, I reduce the jargon in such pieces for the general public. So in that case, anybody who is interested in government action, why government would choose to do A and not B or vice versa can read any of those and sort of just understand how a government has approach a certain issue. I think the main impact really is creating an awareness about any societal problem. The fact that you can take your time to scientifically study a problem and go through a systematic process, create knowledge about that problem, share that knowledge just for people to know. And you would want to hope that once people know, they can act on that knowledge. Because at that point, it's beyond you as an academic. Like You can engage in advocacy as an academic, but it's usually it's like a different kind of advocacy that you can engage in. So what is within a typical academic's domain is creating that knowledge and allowing people to learn and know what is out there and you can only hope that once they know they can act on that knowledge in this case okay they can understand what kinds of strategies that they can use if they form a group they can better appreciate how to collaborate and leverage each other's resources and use those resources to advance a particular cause that is of interest to them Yes, that's understandable. That's understandable. So cool. where do you see yourself in academia? Let's say 10 years. 10 years. So currently you're an assistant professor. Mm -hmm. And 10 years from now, what do you see yourself doing or yeah. being? Two main things, but kind of you can also say it's actually one thing. I really want to, 10 years time, be a leader in energy policy, mainly in Africa, but maybe I'll just try and see if I can do something about the United States as well. But I think that my focus is to be a leader, an academic and industrial leader in Africa's energy policy space. So when you mention energy policy in the next 10 years, like you've got to see my name. <laughs> <laughs> love that love that for you that's very good you know yeah. you didn't really talk much about your interest in energy when you say energy what are we talking about are we talking about sustainability are we talking about fossil fuels what are we what type of energy are we actually talking about yeah renewable energy in particular solar energy and the reason for focusing on africa is because I mean, there's no debate africa has enormous solar energy resources okay untapped solar energy resources it become all too clear to me that it is one thing to write about these topics and bring the knowledge to people's awareness. It is a completely different thing if you want to really see results for your action in terms of writing. You need to act. You have to do something. Uh, whatever that is, I don't know. But I think it is important that if you want to make any change in society, if you want to move the needle in any subject, you can't just tweet and talk and write these articles and blog. And You've got to act. Uh, and there's an idea I picked from a book, a book I recently wrote 
read one the name of the author, but she basically argued that if you want something, you have to do something. It's that simple. Okay, so apart from engaging in research and speaking to people and attending conferences and engaging government leaders, I feel that if I really want to move the needle on, there's 600 million people on the continent of Africa who lack access to energy need to act. And that is what I think will take me into the route of industry. And if I'm to accentuate this point a little bit more, if you think about energy as a commodity, it is so connected to different parts of an individual's life. So when you think about the lack of the 600 million people who lack access to energy in Africa, it's not just lack of energy. You're talking about education because they need light to study, do their homework, to practice their lab sessions, if they are science students, to play with some chemicals and all of that. That's one leg of it. You are also talking about healthcare because then people are sick, they have to go through, they have to do lab tests. Doctors have to use all kinds of equipment to treat people and all of that. That's energy. You are also talking about agriculture, which really has to do with food. Okay, so the 600 million people who lack access to energy on the African continent, it's not just that number. The problem is much more connected and much more nuanced than that. And if you think about it this way, like I'm trying to describe, it's a big challenge that I don't think writing about it alone <laughs> can do anything. <laughs> Absolutely do not. <laughs> yes, I definitely agree. We do have a similarity there because in my graduate degree, I had a concentration in urban informatics and smart cities. And so my focus was trying to figure out how to use renewable energy to help Ghana. And so I actually had this great idea. I was in the works of, you know, getting it in place and then COVID happened. But that's another story for another day because today we're okking okay. about you. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely talk about it. I'm <laughs> but that's amazing. I like that you're able to tell us about that. I really enjoy hearing people wanting to target the motherland and all the resources there that are untapped, that need to be tapped into. I love that. And in 10 years, I will be looking for you in those articles <laughs> and all the, the radio interviews and everything. But I'll say they heard it here first. Yes. They heard it. <laughs> they heard it here first. I'm forecast. <laughs> exactly. So my last question to you is what advice would you have for anyone who's trying to complete their PhD or better yet even before they get to completing they got to get the first stage which is applying right and so yeah. advice for applying advice <clears throat> for once they get in and advice yeah. for defending that dissertation I think it's good you frame the question that way, but then that allows me to say things that I would otherwise not say. Thinking of applying, I think that in hindsight, one of the things that I, I think an applicant should really pay attention to is the statement of purpose. Because the statement of purpose would help the admission committee to decide whether or not this particular candidate we are considering is a good fit. Because in that statement, you are writing about a number of things. One, why have you decided to study that particular program you have chosen? What is motivating you? What do you bring on board in terms of past experiences to contribute? to the program and what are you going to do when you get that degree you have to craft your essay in such a way that either a paragraph or a set of paragraphs respond to these questions you really want to take your time to craft a persuasive convincing essay you know, that the committee would read and would be like wow <laughs> we need to admit this student and so that also means that you want to take your time to apply by which i mean that you don't just wait until like two or three days because what many people may not realize is that good writing takes <laughs> <laughs> it takes ample amount of time, ample amount of yeah. time. Yeah. 
good writing takes time. And so to write something that is not just okay, something that is not just good, but excellent, you really have to put in the work. You never want to turn in your first draft of your statement. You want to take your time to do it well. That's what I would say. But I mean, start applying early. Don't wait till like last minute when you rush through things because that can potentially limit your chances because you just may not have the space to put together a strong application because you have limited time. You may not do a good job. Now, if you get turned down, eh, don't give up. Just keep trying. And at some point, I suspect you'll be like, now, once you get in, a PhD is hard because they are trying to move you from a knowledge consumer to a knowledge producer. And by a knowledge consumer, I mean that you want to do a lot of reading. I mean, a lot. You can think about reading like at least two books, about 150 pages each, and about six journal articles every week for a whole semester. And you've got assignments, 10 papers to write, usually about two or three, depending on the number of courses you are taking. Okay. So you have to be in for it. You're going to learn. And the idea of learning is basically one of my professors used to say, you, you are drinking from the fire hose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they want to inundate you with knowledge. So they're building you this strong knowledge base and you just have to be tenacious. You just have to be perseverant, be willing to want to assert yourself and apply yourself and go through the process. I think tenacity and grit are great assets. You don't necessarily have to be the smartest dude in the room. Being smart helps, but I think at some point it is really down to attitude and your capacity to overcome a discouragement, right? which is what ties into my second point because every now and then you would write assignments, usually about 25 pages and the professors would come with comments that can be quite discouraging. Meanwhile, you thought that, hey, this is the best document I've ever written. They don't necessarily do that to encourage you or to throw you away or to demean you or basically uh, question your intelligence or something. It's just part of the process of developing yourself into a scholar. Okay, So when you turn in assignments and you have all these comments that can be a lot of discouraging, you don't have to give up. You have to take this discouragement. And a friend of mine will say, turn them into encouragement. So you have to take the comments that have come in and see them as an opportunity to grow and get better because quite frankly if you can address those comments on your essay you can always make a distinction between previous essay you wrote and the revised version based on the comment and you can tell that the revised version is always going to read better argue well compared to the previous one and that would only happen when you will not allow the comments to eat you up too much basically build a tough skin so you can handle all of that and then I also have a point about managing uncertainty because I mentioned earlier on that part of earning a PhD is to write a dissertation. And the dissertation, you have to begin with a topic and of course you write different chapters uh, on different parts of the same topic. But that writing is never concrete. You're always going through different iterations. So there is not a time where you can say, hey, boom, we're done. The only time you can say we're done is when you have successfully defended your dissertation and a professor will say, congratulations, like you passed. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only time you can say you're done. But until that point, everything is uncertain. Going to be sleepless nights. You're dealing with questions that sometimes your professors, as part of wanting you to grow, will tell you, Alex, I have no clue. You have to figure this out on your own. Oh, yes. My professors told me that all the time when I was in school. I had issues with my dissertation. When I reached out to them for help, he met me online and told me, I'm not sure about this. You have to figure it out. Okay. They do that deliberately because part of the knowledge production process is to wrestle with uncertainty because there are no clear-cut answers, right? You have to think creatively about data about research questions, about analysis and how you can analyze different problems using different techniques and basically spice up whatever problem you're studying and make it easy to understand, make it persuasive and all of that. Your professor cannot equip with all those tools. You have to bring your own personality to the table, okay? And so you have to learn to grapple with uncertainty. Last but not least, I always tell people that your professors may like you very much, but your dissertation is not the first thing they think about in the morning. <laughs> Because they have so many. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> 
because they have so many things to worry about. And so you have to make sure that you are constantly keeping your work on your professor's agenda. Now, how do you do that? In a number of ways. In my case, what I did was each time that I had a meeting with my supervisor, after the meeting, I will summarize what happened and what he expects me to do the next time and the date we are meeting. And I have an email trail. I can always go back and pull it up. So, hey, Chris, his name is Chris. Hey, Chris, today we discuss A, B, C, D. So these are the things you expect from me in the next meeting on this date. I'll meet you at that time, period. So you always have this email trail that sequences an agenda, shows an agenda of what you did and what is expected of you. And the professor knows that on this date, both of you have a meeting and you don't lose track. So you basically have to own the process and manage it. That way you can expect to keep your work on a professor's agenda. But if you think a professor is going to give you a phone call and email you and say, hey, Alex, where are you? And all those kinds of things. Well, it must be a nice time for a professor to do that for you. <laughs> I wasn't. I am not. So I had to find a way of making it work for me. Well, awesome. Thank you so much. Maybe you motivated. Okay, no, nope, nope, nope. Not even, not even a little bit. I am not motivated to go get a PhD. However, <laughs> someone else that is thinking about it. You should be. <laughs> this is for you. And this is a great experience. Trust me. I'm all right. I am all right. <laughs> Remember the last we were saying that if you're doing an application and it's already stressing you out, it's not for you. I haven't even done an application and it's stressing me out. So it's not for me. You have to know where you're talents and where you want to put your grit. My grit does not want to go there. It wants to go elsewhere. So it's good to, that I know now rather than to go and start something and then have to get it. What is it? What did you say? ABD? Mm -mm. I don't want ABD. Right. But no, thank you so much for participating in today's episode. We truly appreciate it. All your insight is great and continue to do great work for humanity because Ghana's looking for someone like you to come and help us out with what we need to do with our solar energy and other countries in Africa, of course. But yes, thank you so much. Much. Do you have any last words? Any anybody uh, want to shout out? Hey, my advisor Chris Weibo at the School of Public Affairs, University of Colorado Denver. That's where I have my PhD from. Has been very helpful in navigating all of this because, mind you, when you come into a PhD program as a foreign student, you're not just dealing with trying to meet the academic standard, right? You're also dealing with all these kinds of noises. You're black, you have an interesting accent um, in class, and so beyond your ability to believe in your own ideas and mm-hmm. clearly have them in class, you have to find a way of taming all those noises behind you. Okay, and very often you need somebody's support, like. You was very helpful. So shout out to Chris Weibel and uh, all my friends in Ghana. (laughs) (laughs) If if they can listen to this. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You too, Gigi, for putting up such an impressive outlet for people like us to share our story. You're doing some great work. Thank you so much.